This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Talib Vizram, and this is World Changing Ideas from Fast Company Magazine, where we investigate how leading innovators are solving our most challenging issues. Hey, everybody. Last week, we talked about carbon removal strategies and how they could help us cut back on global warming. But we didn't have enough time to get into the concerns and potential consequences behind it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And joining me to help sort through it is our producer, Avery Miles. Hi, Avery. Hey, Talib. I'm glad we're going to chat about this because it seemed kind of significant to cover the larger philosophical question behind carbon removal. You know, what are the drawbacks if we are seriously considering, you know, implementing this technology? Right. And Simon Nicholson from the Institute on Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University brought this up too. This idea that carbon removal isn't a suitable replacement for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Right. So the the moral hazard, as as it's sometimes called, is this idea that even the possibility of large-scale carbon removal would be enough to cause humanity to kind of take its collective foot off the accelerator when it comes to reducing greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere. That's not just a philosophical danger. It's a real political and social danger. If that happens, then carbon removal has failed us. This concept of moral hazard is one commonly used in business. This idea that if you're protected from negative consequences, you're likely to throw caution to the wind. Like if you're insured against something, you're likely to take more risk than you would have. So in carbon terms, if there's a possibility of removing carbon after the fact, maybe you'd be less worried about creating it in the first place. Yikes. That's not the most uplifting note. No, it's not. And, and he went on to clarify that the challenge of climate change requires a rethinking of just about everything we do as human beings. There is no potential future world in which carbon removal acts as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Carbon removal is not some sort of magic bullet that's going to make the threat of climate change go away. At best, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is a small additional step that humanity needs to take in addition to doing everything we can to stop putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere in the first place. Which goes back to our first episode where Dr. Cobb talked about the need to reduce our emissions so we can keep global warming below or at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Right. And as technical as it sounds, it's basically kind of like a carbon budget that the world community has created. The more carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere, the more warming we have. And that's when we've overspent our budget. And as Nicholson noted, we're on track to blow through that 1.5 degree target within the next 12 to 15 years if we stay on our current trajectories. You know, all of this numbers and projections and budget talk got me thinking about how we could really distill this down even more. So I reached out to somebody who put it into simple terms for me. I am Klaus Lackner. I'm at Arizona State University. I'm in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment, and I'm part of the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions. Lochner has been working in this field for a long time. People have called me the godfather of air capture because I got really into it very, very early and was probably the first to say we can use this to cancel out CO2 emissions and stabilize the climate. 
Godfather of Air Capture. Now that's quite a title. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to do my worst Brando impression. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Air Capture was one of the carbon removal techniques Nicholson mentioned. So what kind of work does Lachner do? He's developed a couple of materials that replicate what happens in nature. So kind of similar to how a leaf works, it binds CO2 as the air blows over it. His lab created a resin, which is a plastic material, that when the CO2 comes over it, it binds to it. And that binding works when it's dry, and then making it wet again releases it. Okay, so getting a lot of inspiration from nature. Yeah, no, exactly. And I could get into more specifics about it, but since I'm trying to simplify things here, I want to highlight a few points he made. The first is that there are two ways to look at this immediate crisis. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. We have two principles. One is the polluter pays, and the second one is we need intergenerational equity. The polluter, therefore, has to not just pay to put the CO2 away for right now, but indefinitely. Because if in 300 years from now that CO2 comes back out, it will it will hurt people then, and nobody there, there is responsible for it, and they may or may not be in a position to deal with it. So if you put CO2 away and you want to sequester it, you really should think on the lifetime of this problem. Makes sense, since there's a lot of greenwashing from industries that don't actually address the issue in the long term. Exactly. Which brings me to the other point he made that relates back to the moral hazard idea that we still need to prioritize reducing emissions first. When I asked him about this possibility that carbon removal could act like a get-out-of-jail-free card, he said that might have been a good analogy in 1990, but we're too late for that now. We've already overshot that by thinking that 1.5 degrees Celsius is acceptable. By now, if we put on the brakes as hard as we can, and keep in mind, energy is important. So if you stop too hard and people suddenly have no energy, that's catastrophic too. Right? Basically, the argument has to be you are not allowed to dump CO2 into the atmosphere. And if you couldn't help yourself, then you have to take it back. And that speaks to the whole balancing act we have to do in order to reach carbon neutrality, right? Yep. And this is when he really brought it home. He related the greenhouse gas effect to a waste management problem. We have to say this is a waste and that waste needs to be properly disposed of and managed, just like it is in other things. And the discussion is not much different today on CO2 emissions than it was in the 19th century on sewage and then on municipal garbage. And if you think about it for a moment, this is a very different perspective to look at the problem. And they are not mutually exclusive than mitigation. Okay, I can see how this might be more accessible for people to understand. This is kind of what we were talking about with Jeff the other week. How do you get people to care about climate change so that they act, right? If it's an abstract thing that you can't see that's affecting another community over the other side of the world that you don't know, you don't have the impetus to do something about it right now. Exactly. And Lochner summed it up with a pretty visceral image. Think of me of dumping my garbage into your front yard because I don't want to pay for proper removal. And you wouldn't take it as an answer if I tell you, well, I'm mitigating. It's less than last year. It's 10% less. I'm working on the problem. And you will say this stuff has to go and it has to be properly disposed of right now. 
I think that's where we are with, with CO2 now. My view is we need to fix it the moment it comes out of the ground. So basically, carbon removal strategies will complement our efforts to reduce emissions, but they won't replace them. Yes. And when we're thinking about those reduction efforts, just picture all of that atmospheric garbage you're leaving on people's front lawns. It does put things into perspective when it's right there on your doorstep. That's all for our show today. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to World Changing Ideas wherever you find your podcasts. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Avery Miles. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Franz Bowen, Avery Miles, and Blake Odom. Editing and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Editorial oversight from Deputy Editor Kate Davis and Senior VP of Entertainment Scott Meebus. Music